0: Good morning, friends. Please be seated. I've heard that among some of the Native American tribes, the elders and the wise may preface their telling of the community's sacred stories by saying, I don't know if everything happened exactly this way, but I know that it's true. That approach seems to recognize that in a story, facts are secondary to the meaning that is intended when a skillful use of the imagination is needed instead. Our gospel passage tells us of a seminal moment in our faith tradition. It is well worth pondering in that light because it takes each of us, as aspiring disciples of Jesus, to the precise time and place when his glory was first revealed to those destined to become his disciples. Since they were not yet formed to serve Jesus in that role, they could not know what belief in him would mean. We however, have the benefit of their story to guide us as we learn to know and authentically proclaim Jesus as Lord ourselves. Seems to me that the language of glory and revelation is one of the distinguishing marks of our faith. Whereas other faith traditions, of which I'm aware, tend to emphasize the welcome and useful terms of awakening, enlightenment, or realization to describe their encounter with the sacred. Our scriptures are oriented differently in this respect The difference is significant. The difference, as I see it, lies in the sense that what is revealed is shown in some manner by a gracious act of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit beyond our own natural capacity. It is experienced as a gift, freely given. Our part is to respond in gratitude. When we speak of that which is revealed, whether in scripture or otherwise, it implies that something that has been actual and present but unrecognized is now seen, known, and understood in a new way. This is the basis for the season of Epiphany, which we explore some of the ways Jesus manifested his glory, that is to say, his divinity. In this case, we are told it was by his conversion of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Whatever else we may say about this event, it is striking to note just how far the steward's grasp of the situation falls from the perception of the disciples. It was certainly reasonable for the steward to assume that the bridegroom was the source of the new wine, and to be impressed that the good wine was served last. That may have been unusual, but it can't account for the disciples new perspective. Father Thomas Keating has likened the good wine of the wedding feast to the inspirational message of the gospel, which invites all who partake into new life in God's kingdom after sampling the poor wine, which the world offers instead. If we wonder why it was that Jesus' essential nature was revealed to John and James, to Andrew and Nathaniel, but not to the steward or the nearby servants, we affirm that it is by God's gracious gift to those both willing and prepared to receive it. These men were simple workmen and nothing special in the ordinary way of the world's understanding but they were also deeply rooted in the spiritual life and traditions of their day. They were familiar with the Baptist and aware of his declaration that the one on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. They were anticipating the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. They were prepared with eyes to see and ears to hear. And they saw and heard what Paul later described as the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They were people whose lives had already been touched at times by the Spirit, but like many of us, were not quite sure what to make of it. That the Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained is what sets Jesus apart from us. But it is not what Jesus wants for us. It is lasting communion with him that he wants and offers. And it is the mission of the church to help us come to that moment in time and place when we too can experience this glorious revelation. Of course, neither the good new wine of the gospel message or the church as the body of Christ existed when Jesus was first revealed as Lord. Many years and many faithful lives were devoted to the preservation of the word and the building up of the church. Among the first and foremost in that work, we particularly owe a debt of gratitude to the astonishing life teaching and example of Paul. A generation or so before any of the gospels had been composed, Jesus revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus, In such a way as to convert his spirit to a degree every bit as marvelous as the changing of water into wine. In his own words, Saul became Paul, a new creation in Christ. Paul's story is a wonder unto itself, but the service he performed in Jesus's name exceeds comprehension. What we know of Paul is found either in the Acts of the Apostles or more directly, in the numerous letters attributed to him and addressed to the congregations he founded and visited throughout much of the Greco Roman world. Every year, the season of Epiphany is articulated in large part by epistle lessons from Paul's two known letters to the congregation at Corinth. Today, we begin with the first of seven lessons that address everything from spiritual gifts to faith, hope, love, the body of Christ, and the resurrection. After already covering internal conflict, marriage, food, sexual morality, divergent teachings, and the Eucharist. By necessity, Paul had something to say about every conceivable subject that related to the creation building up and survival of the church community as it evolved. If we consider Jesus as the cornerstone of the church, Paul laid much of the foundation and the language spoken there because he knew it to be essential to the fulfillment of the work of teaching and preparing disciples for a deeper revelation of life in Christ as he expressed it. Today's lesson jumps into the middle of an ongoing conversation about so-called spiritual gifts as they manifested in the life of the church in Corinth. Coral Holiday, a biblical scholar, tells us that Paul's concern here is pastoral. He seeks to reassure the whole church in its faith and to relate each of its members, regardless of one's particular spiritual endowment to the rest of the members in ways that edify the whole church. The fundamental point is that there are a diversity of gifts with a single source, the same spirit. It behooves us then from time to time to think individually and collectively within our own congregation about the presence or absence of the gifts Paul named. Something essential is sure to be revealed. What do we mean, after all, to speak of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, interpretation, and spiritual discernment as spiritual gifts? They are all core values in our formation as a community. But do we rank their value, favor one above others, or neglect some altogether? It's just a question. But if you ever move to look more deeply at any or all of these gifts, I recommend you keep a Bible, a concordance, and a good commentary handy. In any case, how wonderful it is to believe that every person, every role, every manner of participation in this community is a grace-filled manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I don't know how many of you can claim that belief as a fact of life for yourself, but I do know that in God's kingdom and the Lord's church, it is true. There are hundreds of faithful ministers and a cloud of witnesses who do all of the essential work, keeping the doors open and love alive here at Trinity in accordance with their God-given gifts of service and support. There is no community of faith without you. If it's not too bold, let me thank you on behalf of the spirit that unites all of us in Jesus, our Lord. Amen.